This is Beers with Hallows. Threats, Beers, and Mouths Welcome back to another episode of Beers with Talos. I am here today with our co-host, Craig, the Hitman Williams. No one calls me that, and no one has ever called me that. Uh, I think we just set a precedent, so... Jolie? The adverb, Essler? Can we call you Jolie today? I like the adverb. That's psycho. (laughs) (laughs) Nigel L. Largeness Houghton is also with us. Today on the show... We have some some good little tidbits on Athena Go, some recent malware the Talos team has been working on. You guys got a beer today? You ready to go? You ready to do this? I don't drink at work, Mitchell. They don't make good vodka in Texas, Craig. We've already been through this. I mean, look, I'm going to be honest. I'm not saying Tito's is the best, but it's it's fine, great vodka. Uh-huh. Did you say grape vodka? That sounds gross. <laughs> Great. Well, I mean, it's it's vodka. Anyway, so I wanted to, I wanted to start today's meeting off with a little bit of frustration. Um, I recently got one of the new MacBook Pros with the uh, I guess you'd call it the Lemmings Bar or the OLED Bar. Um, you know, seems okay. Battery life was awful. Got an update. It's it's significantly better. Still not great though. But so today. I plug in one of my new uh, assortment of dongles because with the new MacBook, you have to carry around like a little pouch of adapters, you know, little, okay. It's, it's an average size. It's about as big as the AC adapter, which is enormous. And by the way, that's another fun one. When you buy the AC adapter for this thing, which is 80 bucks, it doesn't come with the plug to the wall, you know, the long one, and it doesn't come with the part to attach it to your laptop. So you literally buy the white brick and then for an extra $20, you get the cord that's a three-meter USB-C to plug into your laptop. And then if you want the one to actually plug into the wall with a cord, that's yet another $20. You've so, got to be kidding me. It's 120 bucks per adapter, basically, with three separate items in an order, which is great. That, that was super fun. This doesn't seem like a good idea. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I thought it was just supposed to work. I didn't realize it meant work with a sack full of accessories. This sounds courageous. It gets even better. So I, I, I'm coming to this meeting a little bit late. Uh, I plug in my, my uh, what is it, USB-C, VGA, USB dongle, because, you know, I no longer have a USB port to get the microphone to work. And immediately when I plug it in, Apple helpfully informs me that it needs to update the firmware on the dongle. Pause, 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 pause. Why is there firmware on a dongle? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's reasons. We need to call in somebody from uh, EE. You know, so I plug this thing in and you think, right, so it's going to write to the dongle, maybe you unplug the dongle and plug it back in to reboot it or something. I, you know, I don't know. But anyway, basically, it, it makes my whole machine stop for a bit, uh, install it, takes about four minutes, and then it decides to reboot and install it again, you know, like a basic OS update on the actual MacBook. So maybe it meant firmware update on the USB-C port. I'm not quite sure, but about 10 minutes of wasted time. Pretty great. This is why I'm not buying a new MacBook. Yeah, I mean, I've got all Apple stuff, and I've had Apple stuff for years, but I'm really rethinking it. It used to be the best hardware. I mean, hands down. Well, you know that they, even the new MacBooks are the same tech that they were shipping years ago, like three years ago. So it, it, it's not like it, it's updated at all. It's just that they've just left things off. But, Nigel, there's a touch bar. Nigel, I can play Lemmings on the touch bar. They've removed the useful stuff and given you a touch bar. But I can have lemmings walk back and forth across it. I don't understand. That's what we need. Now, <laughs> I have my three-year-old MacBook Air. It's still humming along peachy keen. I'll just stick with that. Thank you very much. Yeah. 
Wise decision. Yeah, I use the I use the old MacBook Air when I go visit those extra special countries. Oh, I thought you would be better off using a Chromebook and just leaving it at the hotel when you were done. Yeah, I, I, I've got that too. So speaking of things that are frustrating and usually don't work, what have we Jones. seen? <laughs> what have we uh, What have we seen this week in in the world of IoT? I know that's one thing that we've been looking at and addressing and, and working on. Uh, there's been a couple things that I've seen that have gone beyond just you know strangers looking at the web cameras that are in your house. Which, by the way, why do people put web cameras in their house and not just outside on the doors? So I can watch you, Mitchell. Well, they can watch the dog or the baby, you know, if you leave it unattended for a few hours. You shouldn't leave your baby unattended, Nigel. What? This is why CPS got involved. We talked about what? this. When Nigel says his what? baby, he means his guitars. Come on. You gotta <laughs> That's right. So I can That's look right. at my guitars from the office. You've got to talk to them. like 12, 12 babies. They play better when you tell them how good they are. That's actually true. <laughs> but to give you a real-world example, aside from the dog destroying something and you yelling at your puppy, which I would never do, I just constructively tell Bender, please stop destroying that. Um, but, you know, you can watch them if your kid's got a new babysitter and you want to check it out, or if, uh, you know, you're wondering, hey, did I forget to turn the blah off? It's, it's good to be able to look in on it. Now, that said, I would never have one in my house. Um, how many did Edmund take apart? I think like six or eight of them. At least eight by now. Yeah, so we went and bought a couple hundred dollars worth of USB cameras and some other toys, uh, and within about an hour, every single one fell. We've got a number of zero days pending. I think the majority of the vendors are not responding, and these are like well-known vendors. If you want to follow along, you can go to talosintelligence.com and click on vulnerability reports and view the ones that are pending. Um, Once the vendor acknowledges that it goes right up, and then once the vendor issues a patch or decides they won't patch it, we actually issue an advisory. And that's how we keep the Internet of Things a slightly safer place. So, I mean, but, well, and we were just down in uh, we were just down in Austin, Craig, at a, at a hospital thing and at a hospital uh, trade show. And it was interesting to talk to a lot of those people with a lot of the medical devices that they're using in the hospital that some seem to have like full ICS, you know, protection and, and really be built as like an industrial control system type system but some of them really just seem to have the same type of connectivity that a household iot device would have and that's kind of frightening yeah i think this goes back to the fact that when people are designing certain types of devices and this can be anything from something in the medical industry to that light bulb whose color you can change from your chair on your phone they don't design it with security in mind Uh, and so if that's the case there's some severe concerns there Now, luckily for us, a lot of the medical devices are, of course, designed with security in mind, so they're much, much harder to exploit. Um, That's not to say there's not issues, right? We've seen things in the press recently where people have found very severe issues in some medical devices. And so that is something that we're actively looking into. Yeah, I mean, popping a web camera is one thing. Popping an anesthesia machine in a surgical theater is, is quite another set of implications there. Well, and it's not even necessarily popping it, right? A lot of times they will actually look at it from a security standpoint, but what about from checking the stability of its network stack, right? Things like incomplete handshakes, things like malformed packets. These are things that, you know, a QA tester may not think of testing. And we all have known from our time in the network security field that there's a lot of network devices and a lot of physical devices that if you send them enough broken connections and messed up packets, they'll fall over. Oh, they don't even need to be broken. I mean, you remember the old um, the print server from, uh, was it Linksys? That was like about, well, 
getting on for 15, 16 years ago now, all you had to do was scan the thing, right? So just send it packets and it would fall over. Oh, yeah. Wow. yeah. And, hard, and you had to hard reboot the thing. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, I remember that. So you imagine that one with, a, uh, with some, you know, a, um, a medical device. All you have to do is send it legitimate packets, a lot of them, and it falls over and stops working. Right. So well, I, that brings up a, a, a good, good little segue, Nigel. So, I mean, a lot of what we do is research. You know, we find we have a lot of intelligence coming in from a lot of different sources, uh, some from customers, some from industry relationships, other security groups, people we work with, yada, yada. Um, when we find these things that are, you know, easily attacked, they fall over, uh, whatever else, you know, we have to do something about it. And I think that... Um, you know, one thing a lot of people don't talk a lot about or they don't see a lot of and unless it's a major headline story is is the the actual interdiction that goes behind threat intelligence, whether it's something like a webcam or whether it's a you know mission critical system or piece of software that's used in industry. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think we talk a lot about that. So, I mean, from from y'all's perspective, you know, what is the importance of that and, and how do we do that and why do we do things the way that we do in terms of uh, our interdiction team? I, I really wish Matt was here to talk about it, but he's not with us today. Well, I mean, there's interdiction, right? And then there's, but there's also responsible disclosure, right? Which has to go along. And um, that's at the top of my mind right now because we were just asked by a vendor, um, we just gave them some information about a vulnerability in their software and they don't think it's exploitable. So they're going, they were going to ignore it. And what we've now had to do is not only give them the information and the proof of concept, but also write exploit code for it to give it to them to prove to them that yes, in fact, this is remotely exploitable and you do need to do something about it. Right. That, that kind of thing, you know, it, it, it's a little aggravating to a lot of security researchers when people don't you know, kind of uh, just kind of glib over what you've sent them and kind of don't give it the due care and attention that it actually deserves. Right. And then on the other hand, yes, going into, into interdiction where you are, um, you know, finding people who are abusing, using and abusing flaws, right, to let the appropriate authorities know, to figure out what they're doing, to try and stop them from doing it to our customers, you know, that's something something else. Well, they basically call it, you know, basically saying you're a liar, right, which that doesn't work yeah. for us either. Right, they, they, what they want, what they're trying to do is, I mean, like they accuse you of um, a kind of overblowing things. Right, saying that all you're doing it for is you just want the press, you know, about this, blah, blah, blah. And we're kind of like, well, that's not the case. We have, we have plenty of other vulnerabilities in a lot of more major software than yours, um, if, if that was the case, right? That's not what we're looking at here. We're looking at this piece of software because we've been asked to, because somebody is using it, and we found this vulnerability, and so we've reported it to you. Uh, and, you know... If you're not going to take us seriously, then you will after we send you the the exploit code for it. Well, I think it's deeper than that, though, right? Because, you know, when you look at it from the perspective of a user, this company's putting out this software that presumably you think you're paying to have it be secure. The reality is 
when a security company like Talos comes to you and says, hey, you've got a severe security issue, here it is, here's the diff, here's how you can exploit it, and then you still stick your head in the sand, you know, it's a fundamental lack of understanding about security. And it really sends a bright red flag that, hey, you know, if you use this software, you need to be very careful and you probably need to have some secondary line of defense like AMP or a HIPS or whatever. Right. So, I mean, and I think that goes to what you were saying earlier, Nigel, about responsible disclosure. I mean, you have to have a a, a line in the sand that, that can't be crossed or people just take forever. And, and we recently extended our window uh, from, from 60 days to 90 days. Uh, so what happens when you've worked with a vendor for 90 days or more, and they're still not going to admit that there's a problem or fix it? I think, I mean, at that point, it's a case of, listen, you know, we are, the reason why we have a 90 day disclosure timeline is because that brings us in line with just about everybody else who's in this industry, right? They've all got the same. Well, and, and let's not forget the time. important stat, right? We started at 60 and realized mm-hmm. that, it was taking vendors, I think, what? Yeah, longer. Slightly over. Right. 72 days on average. Yeah, I mean, so, so that there's that, you know, and the reason why, you know, you, can't, you extend it to give vendors more of a chance, you know, to, because, you know, you have to, you have to uh, put yourself in their shoes, right? They're, they're, they're trying to get new releases out, put new features in products, things like that, which take time and, and effort. Uh, and you're giving them a security vulnerability that they have to now fix which means that they could potentially miss deadlines right because they now have to fix this problem and qa and test and all that stuff um so i think you know the was changing it to 90 days was a little more helpful to vendors um, but at the same time because you've changed it to 90 days now you have to be really firm with that time Right. Yes, we can adjust by a week or two, something like that, but we're certainly not going to go to like 120 days. Unless in the course of that, there's always extenuating circumstances that you know yeah. could pop up or things like that. But I mean, to Craig's point, you're when you're fixing a vuln, you're not building a new feature for version 2.x, whatever. Correct. Um, you know, so I, I understand the resistance, but at some point in time, we also, I guess, have to consider... Uh, the safety of the community at large, as mm-hmm. opposed to the needs of a vendor, and and yeah, I mean, I think the vendors need to uh, you take a look at these things and kind of weigh it up and say, all right, what's going to cost us the most sales here? Is it going to be a security problem in our software, or is it going to be not having this particular feature, right? Because if that's at the point that you're at, because you know you need to make that kind of choice, right? Then then what is it going to be? How do you how are you going to measure you have to that? Draw the line. Got to draw the line. Well, and I want to go back to something Nigel said and just clarify it. You know, one of the things that's really important to us is that if a vendor is really trying to patch an issue and it's a super complex issue, we'll definitely work with them, right? It's when we have the vendors who either deny the issue exists or go radio silent, we really are going to have to start sticking to that 90-day guideline because we just can't have that gap out there while users are vulnerable. Right. Yes. Yeah, I think one thing that would surprise most users, uh, you know, vulnerability collision is a real thing. You know, it happens yes. several times a year that we're disclosing a bug responsibly and the vendor says, hey, this got simultaneously reported by this other company or these other companies. And so we're not the only ones doing this. There are bad guys right. doing this. There are good guys doing this. And that's why it's so important to try and stick to those timelines to minimize the window for exploitation. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a very uh, wise person um, once said to me that, you have to remember that for every vulnerability that I find, I have to think that 
there's a whole bunch of other people around the world who have found the same thing. Was it Lorraine? That may well have been, yes. <laughs> She's the only wise person I know, so. <laughs> I'm going to tell your wife. <laughs> in, in this industry, how's that? <laughs> there you go. Good save. So, I mean, we, we look at this and we see that, you know, we, we did a lot of work when it was um, time to, to really, really, really evaluate that, that vulnerability disclosure policy. And one of the interesting things we found was that a lot of the top tier commercial vendors were, were relatively close to their open source counterparts around that, like, you know, 70 to 80 day window. Um, you know, vendors like Apple, Microsoft, you know, these major commercial vendors that, that make a lot of that software. Uh, so you think that the issue is that, you know, a lot of those smaller commercial vendors just don't have the horses in the stable to address the problem? Absolutely. I, that, that's got to be the case for the smaller ones, right? And you've got to think about how many smaller companies there are who are producing things that are connected to the internet, right? That giant internet of things stuff and how many small companies are out there producing stuff and, and how difficult it may well be for them to, you know, patch security vulnerabilities or to even look through their own code and have their, maybe they don't even have the funds to have their own code audited for vulnerabilities. Well, there was a, uh, there was a library, um, Nigel, not too long ago that I believe that we found a vulnerability in that uh, was like written by you know, one guy, and it was just his open source project, and it's that's it's right, yeah, everything. Yeah, kind of, you know, it's like you know, this guy gets you know security vulnerability reports from the likes of us or whatever, and you know, now he's freaking out. He doesn't have anybody to test. And yeah, well, I think that that particular case, the the guy himself had actually stopped developing on that particular library many years ago. Uh, and, you know, it was a case of having, now having to go and track down who is currently maintaining it, right? And you know, that was, that was a, a job in and of itself. Yeah, and to tie it back into real-world devices, I mean, time and time again, we see these small IoT cameras, uh, you know, things like an IoT refrigerator. And the reality is they're priced at the same price point as the device without uh, a computer in it, right? And what that means is there's no development team sitting there waiting. Right. There's no one waiting to write the patch. And so the problem is when we disclose these issues, some of these companies no longer have a development team or the ability to produce the patch because the build system, the tool chain are all gone and there's no one left who knows how to do it. And my favorite one is when we had a company ask about, hey, how do I fix this default credential problem? And we're like, well, why is it running SSH? Yeah, <laughs> complete lack of response. Have you considered turning SSH off? Oh, OK. You know, it's little things like that that just kind of give you insight into, you know, where the corners have been cut and how cheaply these things have been designed to be profitable. And that's why when it comes to an IoT vendor, you've really got to be careful about who you select. You've got to make sure that you pick a vendor that's reputable, that will be there at the end of the lifetime of the device, right? Like, think about how long you keep your thermostats or your garage door openers, right? We're talking 10 years. Well, think about the only people who are probably going to consider doing that are security people. Right. You know, I had somebody ask me once, well, how do I know what a reputable vendor is? Because obviously you can't go by brand because a lot of the brands will put their name on a cheaper device. You know, the only thing I could come up with was, well, go to the website and see if they have security advisories. Yeah. That's, 
that's about the only thing you can do, uh, uh, even as a security person, right? You don't have the time, maybe not even the knowledge, uh, how to go about um, looking for a vulnerability in a device that you now own or want to own, right? Yeah, I don't. Uh, the, the other thing related is something I hate about um, security when it's done by the wrong people is that you get uh, security people that take advantage of people that are not aware of security. Right. And, right. I, and I'll give you give you an example. Um, my dad, my dad's in his 80s and he doesn't know a ton about computers as a Mac, you know, so he just kind of he reads the news and he checks his email and that kind of thing. Well, his printer and I won't call out who did it, but his printer stopped printing black ink. So I'm thinking, you know, it dried up because he doesn't use his printer very much, whatever. He calls the company. His company wants to sell him a security product. Company wants to sell him, you know, clear his cookies, clear his cache, do this all, you know, uninstall bad drivers, things like that. Like none of the problems have anything to do with. Are you sure he didn't call a Windows support scammer? Well, that's I, I, I asked him the same question. I'm like, are you sure you called this company? And he showed me the number and I checked it. Yeah, it was. But well, to be fair, he could have actually jammed a cookie up the nozzle. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. I hate when I get cookies stuck in my printer. Like, why would you sell a piece of security software to solve a problem that's completely related? And I hate that because it just it just feels like someone is using security to take advantage of a person who isn't aware. And that drives me insane. You know, when I when I hear about people talk about IoT, I cannot tell you how many times I've heard people talk about it like it's the end of the world. You know, the reality is there's one thing that every single IoT device has in common. Right, it should be talking to a very, very few number of people. So, if you have your dishwasher on and it tweets at you when it's done or whatever, and every single day for every single year of its life, it connects to Amazon's EC2 cloud, and that's it. And then one day it starts connecting to a data center in the Ukraine. That's when you should be concerned, right? You're assuming people are going to check their logs and know that it connected to a DC in the Ukraine. Well, I'm getting there, Mitchell. Getting them. <laughs> When you get these devices, if you simply look at what they're connecting to and you set up the proper access controls, that can save you a lot of time. And if you can't do that, you can get simple stuff like our new Umbrella product that can at least help provide some basic level of security. And, and I would advise for enterprise customers who actually can spend the money to properly secure these devices, you know, things like StealthWatch can help spot these patterns very, very easily. Craig, while you're while you have the floor here, uh, you want to tell us about some of the things that we've on the outreach side have have written about this week. I know we had a, a pretty popular post on Athena Go, uh, which actually I really wanted to name that uh, that post a little differently, but I, I was vastly overruled. What would you have named it? I really like the uh, the the Primus reference, and uh, Athena was a rat tour driver. You know, I'm- hold on a second. Hold on a second, Craig. I, uh- Totally zoned out. Then Mitchell was speaking for more than ten seconds. <laughs> uh, yeah. What, what, what policy are you talking about, Mitchell? What did they overrule you on this time? Uh, on well, actually, they used another one of my titles for the post. I, I really wanted to call uh, the Athena co- uh, Athena Go post. Uh, Athena uh-huh. was a rat tour driver. So Mitchell wants uh, everyone to know he knows who Primus is. Yeah, he does. He well, loves him. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> Who's the best rock bassist of all time? Uh, best rock bass, bass player of all time. That's a tough one. Do you, do, would you count Paul McCartney as a, 
a rock bass player because he's the best of all time. He would, he would kind of be like the godfather of, of most of them. I mean, he wasn't Everything. super skilled as a bassist, but... Oh, yeah, he was. Absolutely fantastic. You need to listen to his bass lines, man. Eh, he was good. He was good. You guys are going to come to blows over this one. This is the best conversation but, ever. <laughs> also, I mean, you've, got, you've also got to think about Bootsy Collins, right? Absolutely. Bootsy. Phenomenal, right? Can't, can't beat Bootsy, can you? Really? No, no. That's Flea. Flea goes in there as well, actually. Flea's pretty decent. Yeah. I don't know. Martin Turner, also excellent. Well, Some you know, good ones. Anyway. Anyway, we're rat-holing now. <laughs> See what yeah. I did there? So let's talk about this rat that is Athena Go. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I, I want to have a more important discussion about your insistent use of puns and blog titles. <laughs> I can't stop. I don't. I can't help myself. I don't know what's going on. There's probably a group out there on Reddit somewhere, and I don't know where it is because I can stop whenever I want. But if you have a problem, you should go look it up. No, this is actually this was discussed this week uh, a few times on Spark. My incessant use of dad jokes and blog titles is becoming problematic. I like your use of dad jokes in blog titles. I love it. I personally love it. I mean, no one's complained. I just, I want to make sure that you're okay with stopping if you have to. I don't know if I can, dude. It's a problem. Yeah. So anyway, to the Athena Go malware, um, you know, one of the things that I thought was really interesting about it was that the actual payload is written in Go, which is bizarre. I don't think I've ever seen another piece of malware written in Go. How big was that piece of malware then if it was written in Go? 3,000 megabytes. That's what I'm saying. I mean, <laughs> Go puts all of the things and the, and the kitchen sink in any binary that you compile, right? So how big was that thing? I think it was pretty big. You know, one of the other things that was really interesting about this is the actual complete lack of OPSEC by the author. I guess we can yeah. drop some secret info in here that wasn't in the blog. Um, oh, I, bet I know who wrote it then. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? Like if you pick a, a fairly offensive term as your username, and you uh-huh. reuse that all over the internet, and you yeah. critique other malware authors' Go yeah. binaries. You, you stand out. Yes, right? there's not like two people doing this. There's one person doing it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Name's probably Alaska. <laughs> Just saying. You could actually track this guy by using that username and looking for uh, Go networking techniques, and you could actually find him critiquing other people's malware code on these little underground forums. It was really pretty amazing. I mean, honestly, when you think about it, writing a piece of malware is, is good practice for writing actual applications. When you're talking about how do I get it to uh, communicate over a network, how do I get it to install, how do I get it to use services on a machine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What are, you, are you trying right. to get people to work for the antivirus industry or something? No, I'm just saying that's a pretty, <laughs> it's, it's a good way of actually getting practice for writing you know, code that is not malicious. Yeah, well, I, I think anytime you try and incorporate really weird techniques that you've never written before, like I remember personally when I was in school, uh, they had us write a remote data store, which was a new idea for me, like not only connecting over the network, but then finding a way to store keys and value pairs, mm-hmm. you know, efficiently really makes yeah. you think about different ways of coding. That's a yeah. weird project for cosmetology school, Craig. It is. <laughs> well, how do you think I keep this beard so pretty? <laughs> we, we don't know. It does not glisten like Warren's. I will say that. No, that's true. Warren has a very pretty, pretty glistening beard. <laughs> he was so excited when we had uh, when we sponsored the B sides at his hometown, 
and it yeah. turned out we were all staying at the most bombed hotel in the world. That was where oh, the conference was we didn't we didn't stay at the most bombed hotel. The conference was at the most bombed hotel. Yeah, correct. So we did stay there for hours and hours over a couple of days. <laughs> this, this hotel apparently averaged uh, during the troubles was bombed uh, on average like twice a year. Oh, to be fair, it was it was nice, freshly renovated for whatever reason. I mean. It's kind of like, you know, the, the, what they say about the queen, right? Where uh, she thinks that the wool smells like fresh pant. Ah, uh, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah, British jokes. Okay. Uh-huh. Well, I just, I, I think the other thing of note is that it's, you know, more malware that continues to move towards Tor as a command and control infrastructure. You know, I, I think these days we're seeing that on a really regular basis. So it's just one of those evolutions of malware where... That seemed to have gotten worse when people figured out that they could do like Tor to web, like actually go to the surface web from Tor and, and draw people in. Because I guess getting somebody to, you know, get on Tor to pay a ransom was pretty tough. Who knew? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's honestly one of the things that I always thought was really interesting about the older groups of malware. You know, you think about how difficult it would be to explain to someone without a technical background, I need you to go buy this imaginary thing called a Bitcoin. You know, and then I need you to transfer it to my wallet and you need to use Tor to get it to this site to read the instructions to do that. Yeah. Good luck. Right. Yeah, that's that's not going to happen there. Uh, any parting shots that you guys want to offer, leave or anything we didn't get to today? I just want to let everyone know if they want to subscribe to the Talos newsletter to get all the information about our upcoming quarterly threat briefings and webinars, uh, please go to talosintelligence.com and click on the Contact Us tab and sign up for the Threat Source newsletter. So thanks for joining us this week on Beers with Talos, and we hope you join us again. Have a great day, and we'll see you next time on Beers with Talos. Cheers. Cheers.